LP Warren, 95.1 FM, community radio at its best. It's 4 o'clock. All right, welcome to Politics and Science. I am your host, John Barkhausen, and this is a special edition starting a little bit early, an hour earlier, and uh, cutting off the previous show with uh, Stonehill and Blue Suede Rock, so thanks to him for making room for this special edition of Politics and Science with Dr. Raymond Pete. Uh, Dr. Pete is a, uh, has a PhD in biology and is a, has a specialized in physiology. And Ray, are you there? Can you? Okay, well, you're not coming through. I've got to figure this out. Okay, try that again. Uh, hello? Oh, yeah, <coughs> you're there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, if you could fill us in maybe a little bit about your background, it would be great. Okay. Um, in the 1950s, I, was, uh, I started studying uh, Blake around uh, 1958, I think, ran across him in a, a literature course and uh, wrote a, a paper on him. No, I meant, uh, yeah, 1958. No, 55, I think, was when I started hmm. with a literature course. And uh, then I started my uh, thesis on him in 58 and 59, finished my master's degree at the University of Oregon with a thesis on Blake. And uh, then, uh, by chance, I taught a combination of courses, uh, mostly biology, but uh, a painting course or two at a little college in Urbana, Ohio. And uh, then because of uh, mostly uh, political things connected to uh, anti-war, anti-atomic bomb testing in the atmosphere and such, I uh, left uh, Urbana and uh, started my own college in Mexico, uh, named it Blake College, and uh, the government uh, shut that down in 65. And uh, hmm. so I, I taught linguistics uh, at Montana State for a year and tried to restart Blake College in Oregon. Uh, that went on for a couple of years with, with the FBI uh, constantly watching the students and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then I, I went to graduate school, 1968, at University of Oregon, and uh, I had been uh, studying um, in relation to language and uh, Blake's ideas, theory of knowledge. Um, I, I had been thinking about concentrating on brain physiology, but at the university, I found that. Uh, that was the most dogmatic area in the biology department other than genetics. Mm. Uh, nerve theory was a, a sort of a caricature of primitive computer uh, theory at the time. And uh, so I, I found a, a really physiological area of biology was reproductive and aging physiology. Mm-hmm. That's what I did my thesis on. And uh, since, since then, I've just been uh, following up 
similar ideas, both in theory of knowledge and, and function of the brain and how the reproductive hormones, for example, affect the um, brain function. Mm. Yeah, and maybe you could say a word or two about um, a lot of your work has been just uh, basically, in, from my impression, is collating a lot of the research that's been done over the last century. Uh, and maybe you could say a little bit about about that. Um, when I, I ran into the uh, biological dogmatism of the nerve people, um, uh, they were... Um, basing everything on an all-or-nothing function of, of nerve membrane. And uh, from the reading I had been doing and some experiments, uh, I was very skeptical about the whole uh, membrane control of cell biology. Hmm. Uh, and uh, starting from uh, when I was about eight years old and read about the history of inheritance <clears throat> in the encyclopedias, I, I saw that uh, there was very good evidence for the Lamarckian type of inheritance all the way uh, through the early decades of the 20th century. And it was essentially stamped out by not permitting any more teachers uh, to describe the Lamarckian theory starting in 1947, and uh, that seeing that the modern biology people were uh, explaining everything in terms of genes and membranes, uh, I looked around in the literature contemporary with uh, what, <clears throat> what we were being assigned and saw that Otto Barberg had solved most of the problems of uh, how uh, cancer develops, for example, mm -hmm. on the basis of uh, damage to the respiratory energy-producing system. <clears throat> and uh, uh, that was uh, very convincing to me that, that, he, that people were uh, ignoring him or denying his work had any validity without even understanding it. They always misquoted and misrepresented it. And uh, at the same time, I ran into the uh, the work of Gilbert Ling in the early 1950s and saw that he had uh, demonstrated the uh, irrelevancy of the so-called nerve membrane or cell membrane in general. And um, his his work had uh, basically solved all of the problems that my professors were working on and uh, mm -hmm. mystifying, really uh, uh, confusing and, and creating problems where there weren't any problems. And uh, I wrote to him, I think it was in the fall of 68, and uh, said you seem to have solved all of these problems that are confusing my professors. And he, he said, you just don't understand science. <laughs> <laughs> science is about prestige and money and power. And uh, I've written to him two or three times 
over the decades, and he's been very helpful each time. Mm. Yeah, he's a, I mean, I, I have his book, and it's way over my head in terms of math and uh, probably other things as well. But uh, he is a, a brilliant man, and uh, his just uh, the face of it, his uh, his theory of how cells uh, function makes so much more sense. But I think we're leaving a lot of people in the dark here about um, what exactly we're talking about. And I think in general terms, you've uh, focused on research uh, that's been basically not in the media uh, which is why I think it's important for you to be on radio stations like this. And by the way, we are having a fundraiser here. So if anybody would like to support independent science and uh, free speech and community media, uh, feel free to go to WMRW.org where you can stream the show and you can also make a donation. And uh, we're grateful for any amount. And thank you for that. Um, but I think a lot of your research, Ray, has been about uh, basically environmental influences on life and uh, countering basically the mainstream uh, science who is saying it's all genetic, uh, that environment has very little influence on why we get sick or anything like that. Um, would you say that's true? Um, yeah, except that um, I see the mainstream as uh, having been exactly where I've been, except they got shut down financially and and in publication. Mm. Uh, the, the same time Lamarckism was extirpated from high schools and universities, uh, the field theory of embryology was definanced mm. and just, just disappeared, um, even though it, it was... Uh, the mainstream based on the soundest facts and the genetic <laughs> control people. <clears throat> um, if, if you look at summaries of, of the classic papers in genetics, you see uh, how hypothetical and rationalistic it is. It's sort of like a, a, it could happen <laughs> approach to science. And uh, uh, the, 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 um, they define themselves as a mainstream simply by shutting off publication hmm. to to the dissidents. I see. And, uh, but now it's coming back. Uh, uh, people like Shapiro with his uh, bacterial demonstration of, of uh, environmental uh, and uh, uh, transgenerational influences. Uh, uh, John Karen's is another um, uh, bacteria person who has kept alive the influence of the environment on inheritance. Um, uh, there's there's been a, a continuous um, environmental developmental field approach in all aspects of biology, but they've been systematically uh, quieted. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's some ideological reasons. We've talked about these before, but um, but there's also some very uh, pointed financial reasons in that uh, if the environment does affect our health, uh, it means that corporations that are polluting that environment are basically doing it at our expense in dollars and also our expense in quality of life because they're killing us. Um, um, 
by poisoning. Yeah, you can you can see that uh, over and over. Uh, every generation has its uh, area of concentration. Uh, the behaviorist uh, psychologists uh, defended, uh, basically defended poverty and oppression because they said, uh, "What happens to the uh, brain of the fetus in utero?" Uh, it's purely genetically determined, so the mother can be starved half to death. That isn't going to hurt the offspring. Mm. And uh, the medical establishment uh, uh, went along with that, uh, <laughs> justifying uh, basically starvation living for for the poorer classes. Jeez, yeah, it, I mean, all the science influences public policy in a in a, an enormous way, and uh, so. It has had huge repercussions. Uh, yeah, the um, uh, the um, only time I had an actual employment contract was from uh, the Catholic University of Chile, and uh, under the uh, uh, the government in the, the early seventies, uh, they were uh, encouraged to do research on the influence of. Uh, economic factors on the development of intelligence. And I got a job directing a project in the influence of nutrition on brain development at the University of, of uh, Catholic University in Valparaiso. Hmm. And uh, that was part of the social change that was shut down in the coup of 1973. And uh, the whole uh, economic, intellectual environment had progressed to that point that they they were interested in in the uh, fetal influences and in nutrition, but uh, <laughs> the American influence wiped that out with uh, Kissinger and yeah. Pinochet. So you were there for the coup in Chile? Uh, no, no, I didn't get there. Oh, you didn't. No. Oh, you had the job, but you never got there in time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I guess there wouldn't have been a job. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's another reason that was a terrible tragedy. Not only all the loss of life and the and the stealing of their democracy. Uh, yeah, but that that happens constantly in the U.S. Ever since 1947 seems to be when it started in in every field of biology and psychology. That's right. You've discussed uh, the Cold War in biology uh, before, and uh, who wrote that book, Ray? I'm Carl Carl Lindegren. Lindegren. That's right. Yeah, where while we're accusing Russia of uh, having uh, ideology mixed with their science, we're, we're practicing it more than anything. Um, uh, yeah, the um, even the humanities. Uh, uh, were subjects of the same influences. Um, linguistics. Uh, I, when when Blake College was shut down, I thought I would uh, just simply shift my activity to teaching linguistics, and uh, uh, I saw that the uh, influence of Chomsky with Pentagon finding funding mm-hmm. uh, had spread across the country uh, by uh, the late 1960s uh, it was getting into uh, essentially every department of the humanities I 
I taught a course through the Honors College at the University of Oregon uh, on interdepartmental uh, conceptions of human nature. Uh, and uh, we got speakers from 10 different departments. And uh, each of them said our departmental uh, most important insight to human nature is Chomsky's generative language theory. Hmm. Uh, speaking of totalitarian cultures. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so um, we're on the subject of humanities, and maybe we should get to Blake before the time whizzes by and we haven't had time to discuss it. This is a call-in show, but I'd like to wait for a while for a, so we can hear Ray's thoughts about uh, William Blake, uh, his art, and how art relates to science. And um, and, and your uh, thesis for your master's, was it... Um, I found it online, Ray, but I, the, I couldn't... There's one copy of it at the library in the University of... Um, uh, where is it? C- Seattle University? Or... Um, w- w- Oregon. Oregon, thank you. Yeah. Um, and I don't think they would allow me to take it out from here. Uh, it was called William Blake and the Mysticisms of Sense and Nonsense. Yeah. And I, I bet it's interesting reading. Um, I, I, I concentrated on, on his philosophy, um, epistemology and ontology and ethics. And uh, the, um, the, that idea that he, he was important in all of those areas uh, guided my thinking in uh, science since it it uh, went along with what I had been learning on my own uh, and uh, that he was uh, putting things together uh, creating a, an image of of uh, human nature that was very different from anything uh, that dominated our cultural institutions. Hmm. You were uh, int- you were introduced to him in sc- in school. You said, um, yeah, in a, a world uh, literature course uh, when I was a, a sophomore. I think I started and first read some of his poems and saw that his language, even though they had uh, the introduction to that section. Uh, described him as a, a Christian mystic and had his uh, songs of innocence, I, I could see that, that there was irony and uh, complexity in his language that was unique mm. in my experience. Hmm. And uh, so I, I uh, there, there was a, a very good, uh, I considered him the, uh, one of the two or three brightest professors at the college, Arthur Kreisman, uh, who uh, did uh, let me sign up for a, a course just in Blake for my uh, third year of, of college. And uh, uh, so I spent uh, that quarter reading uh, people who had commented on, on Blake, uh, Northrop Fry and Jacob Bronowski, who happened to be a biologist, uh, commenting on, on the historical setting and uh, as well as Blake's own writing, and uh, that pretty much formed my uh, philosophical 
orientation to to read and figure out how Blake fit in with the mainline philosophers, Kant, Hegel, Marx, and uh, uh, Locke, and uh, Hume. Uh, Blake uh, had commented on, on several of his contemporary uh, philosophers and uh, pretty much ridiculed them as he did some of the scientists. And uh, since since he worked for publishers as an engraver, he was able to be acquainted with the authors that were being published and engraved. Mm. And uh, so he and uh, Henry Fuseli, the painter, illustrated uh, Erasmus Darwin's books. And Erasmus Darwin, along with Lamarck, really was the, the main uh, initiator of evolutionary thinking in biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, his grandson, Charles, uh, sort of degraded the concept and made it, turned it into a, a kind of imperialism uh, along the, the lines of Malthus <laughs> that uh, stress capitalism and imperialism uh, were shaping a lot of Darwin's ideas, but in a later edition, uh, Darwin said, well, no, I, I'm not exclusively saying that competition between species or between individuals uh, is what natural selection uh, isn't the only thing. And he said there are other forms of inheritance. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in a, a weak, second-handed way, he uh, recognized that his grandfather and Lamarck uh, did have some uh, some importance. Uh, Samuel Butler, in a couple of books, uh, put down... Charles Darwin as as a phony for misrepresenting who really thought of the idea of evolution of species. Um, wait, wait a minute, Charles Butler said he, that he thought of the evolution of species. What was that? I, I didn't follow what you said about Charles Butler. I'm sorry. Oh, oh, Samuel Butler. Samuel Butler. But, uh, wrote, um, for example, unconscious memory uh-huh. that, that analyzed the uh, thinking of Rasmus, Darwin, and Lamarck, <clears throat> and uh, showed that uh, memory and uh, inheritance are uh, very similar biological processes. Okay. And uh, if, if you look at it in terms of uh, present biology, it would uh, reduce to to the idea that uh, genes are always under the influence of uh, chemical modification other than the DNA bases. Uh, uh, They're being methylated, for example, Mm. and and the way they're expressed is modified by several different kinds of, of chemical reactions. Uh, so, so it's a chemical and physical process that, that uh, blends between memory and inheritance. Hmm. 
um, and Darwin uh, had acknowledged the, in the idea of gemules uh, something from the whole physiology affecting the inheritance. But uh, Samuel Butler pointed out that uh, Erasmus, Darwin, and Lamarck had uh, been much more coherent in their description hmm. of, of the process. And, and it turns out that now we talk about it as uh, epigenetic modification of the DNA and its expression. But for, for 150 years, uh, the Lamarckian view sort of disappeared from, from the main currents. And I know we've talked about this before, but why did uh, everybody come down on Lamarck so much? Was it just to justify the social power structure that was um, yeah, the, in place? Yeah, the man who succeeded him uh, at the uh, French uh, institution uh, denounced him and uh, said that basically he was an anti-Christian with his ideas uh, uh, contradicting the Bible. And uh, so, so there was a lot of, of uh, Christian theological attack during the 19th century. Mm. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the current issue uh, tries to uh, put evolution on the side of progress and science and put religion uh, against all of that, which they were in the case of Lamarck, but with Darwin, Darwin became the uh, imperialist uh, uh, philosopher, uh, the, the, uh, the strong uh, winning is the direction of, of progress. So uh, the, uh, at, at the time I started graduate school, uh, uh, Conrad Lorenz, uh, was uh, about to get the Nobel Prize. There was a whole current in science uh, justifying militarism. And, uh, um, you know, Con Conrad Lorenz uh, was the ideologist of the uh, Racial Hygiene Institute justifying genocide in Germany. And that was really mainline uh, genetic thinking in America and Germany in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, but uh, the defeat of, of the Nazis uh, made it embarrassing for the Americans to keep using those terms of genocide and so on, but by the uh, 60s, uh, Lorenz was being rehabilitated, mm -hmm. uh, and they weren't talking about his Nazi <laughs> beginnings, and uh, my professors were all basically uh, committed to the, the same uh, uh, genetic determinism, and uh, yeah, uh, that you, you can see that uh, tendency in in Darwin the way he uh, considered that even botanical uh, species from England were going to displace. Native species in in New Zealand, for example, the way white people were displacing the brown people, mm -hmm. uh, just a real imperialist racist. 
and uh, the um, during the 19th century, the, the, a lot of the Christians were uh, going onto Darwin's side along with imperialism, but the, the um, uh, Protestant uh, traditions uh, that the same ones that supported the American Revolution. Uh, the Great Awakening uh, had a lot of democratic uh, impulses, uh, equality, anti-slavery, and in the 19th century, uh, uh, feminism and uh, uh, social equality and so on were, were part of the uh, Protestant or Christian revival. And uh, William Jennings Bryan against uh, Clarence Darrow was sort of caricatured uh, the uh, backwardness of people who opposed uh, Darwinism. But that the, the trial, uh, the monkey trial, uh, occurred at the height of, of uh, the uh, uh, eugenics domination of, of biological thinking. And um, William Jennings Bryan uh, represented the, uh, the public common persons uh, and, and uh, anti-racial thinking uh, uh, with uh, Clarence Darrow siding with the imperialists and racists and uh, Bryan uh, siding with the common person against racism and genocide. And uh, he didn't put it in the proper political language. And so he's been ridiculed ever since as an ignorant uh, person uh, opposing progress. Mm -hmm. but, but when you look at it in the context of who the, the uh, geneticists really were, the, the people who set up Hitler's genocide, uh, and you see that uh, Brian and and the Christians were really on the on the right side, on the side on the side for uh, human rights, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah, um, and uh, Blake was was uh, at the center of of all of those movements that influenced American history and and scientific thinking. Uh, philosophical thinking in that uh, sort of underground, uh, unofficial uh, atmosphere. Mm. Well, he certainly had an incredibly productive uh, lifespan, and both in art, um, I don't know if everybody out there has seen his uh, paintings and etchings and uh, drawings, but they're certainly astounding to look at. And in addition to the artwork, uh, he's, uh, he's he writes an immense amount of poetry that goes with it, and some of it's prose too, I suppose. But um, he uh, he's an amazingly accomplished person for somebody who never, you know, from our point of view these days, from somebody who never went to school. Um, maybe you could comment a little bit on his education, such um, as it was. Yeah, he he went to a drawing school. I think when he was ten, and then was apprenticed to an engraver when he was fifteen, and uh, he started associating with 
with the educated people through the engraver when he was an apprentice and uh, was uh, writing poetry in his late teens and early 20s. But as simply a craftsman, uh, he he was uh, not not really at the center of of their movement, which was uh, educated writers who were were getting published and having people to illustrate their books. So he knew these people and uh, became friends with with some of them, like uh, William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, Joseph Priestley, the uh, Oxygen guy, yeah. who was also the founder of Unitarianism, oh. or one of the founders. Um, and these people were the, the radicals and progressives who were actually in danger of, uh, of being uh, imprisoned or killed by the government for their opinions. Uh, some of, of Blake's acquaintances were uh, tried for treason in uh, 1795. Hmm. Um, the um, atmosphere among the people was such that uh, all three of, of the, the first ones tried were acquitted by the juries and the, the government had other, I think it was 30 other people indicted. Uh, they uh, dropped the cases against them because it was getting so embarrassing because uh, the, the uh, transcripts of the trials were being published mm-hmm. and it, it was hurting the government <laughs> uh, to uh, lose the cases and get all of this publicity for the anti-government view. And, and there was they had a list of 500 that they intended to prosecute if, if they had been winning with the juries. And, and these people were all accused of treason against the king? Um, yeah, high, high treason for um, belonging to the, the uh, uh, corresponding society, uh, which stayed in touch with the revolutionaries in America and France. And uh, it was uh, a treason to uh, express opposition to uh, monarchy. Uh, the um, the law actually said they it had to lead to armed rebellion, but they, the prosecutors were bending the interpretation and hmm. saying that having a bad attitude was treasonous. Yeah, a rebellious, a violent rebellious attitude. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so it sounds like Blake was doing a lot of reading, and he he was right in the thick of uh, whatever uh, cultural movements were happening at that point. Um, um, it, did, did he read science also? Uh, yeah, um, his um, parents were for a time uh, attending the uh, Swedenborgian church, oh, yeah. and uh, Swedenborg was. Uh, was a, a real scientist, uh, did some uh, very hundred years premature uh, nerve research. Hmm. And uh, so Blake uh, knew a lot about uh, nervous anatomy, uh, biology in general, uh, knew all of the 
scientists in London, really, uh, at least to the extent of, of reading mm-hmm. things that the publishers had. And uh, he, uh, because they were, uh, so many of them were radicals in opposing monarchy, uh, he he was friendly with them politically, uh, but um, he didn't uh, accept their uh, rationalistic, stylish way of thinking about uh, reality. Uh, Priestley uh, had some ideas that that Blake found scientifically justifiable, such as energy. Uh, uh, He Priestley believed that uh, matter was made up of energy, and and Blake uh, saw um, energy as being the essence of human life. Hmm. And uh, once referred to uh, being so inspired that sparks were coming out of his fingers. <laughs> wow. Um, but other the the main scientific mood of of those uh, deists and and rationalists was uh, that reason was. Uh, where where attention should be put rather than uh, on experience and uh, that matter was some sort of an inert something not having intrinsic energy uh, that uh, it was uh, uh, an idea about matter that a lot of people still have that uh, uh, consciousness can't possibly come out of matter because matter is is um, something that has to be pushed around by extrinsic forces like billiard balls. Hmm. I mean, so the mechanistic view. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so Blake was uh, doing better thinking about the philosophy of science than even even than Joseph Priestley, um, but especially uh, uh, the, the, uh, the worst mechanists. Uh, uh, he uh, not only was putting um, energy into matter, but uh, he uh, wanted to see uh, experience as a part of the nature of matter that um, everything was following the same principles, whether it was a, a piece of uh, sand or or a, a bug or, or or a person. Uh, the the um, energy and interaction uh, were the um, essential properties of of matter and of life. So it's a, it's a building. It's a, it's a building um, uh, aspect of matter that it actually gains complexity. Is it? Um, that it gains what? Complexity. Oh, oh yeah. As it's it the, uh, um, his, um, uh, he he uh, sometimes called the um, the principle of of uh, life or of of knowing the poetic genius. And uh, 
this he um, saw as being a universal thing that uh, a plant or an animal, its form was expressing its poetic genius. Uh, so it it was kind of a lively version of Spinoza's pantheism. Mm. Uh, but um, he didn't uh, see any any uh, separation between uh, matter, energy, and consciousness, and uh, believed that uh, experience was. Uh, he even said experiment was the true form of knowing. And uh, uh, the uh, the experiencing person uh, couldn't derive anything new from previously uh, learned knowledge, um, and and this sort of offended the uh, the uh, university educated people who who believed that they had. And learn something important at the university. Sure. Uh, and Blake was uh, saying that uh, every moment we're experiencing something new that uh, is changing what we did know. Mm. And, and so the the, uh, the can- canonical knowledge that you get at the university is always necessarily in doubt. But uh, it, Blake said, "If you can't doubt from what you experience, you can only you can doubt, have to doubt everything that people tell you is true, but um, experience can't be doubted because that's that's what it is." I see. So we have a question, uh, email question just came in concerning Blake. It's from. Uh, Jose Gonzalez, and it says, uh, in your William Blake article, you briefly talk about the difference between the craftsman and the academic. Can you go f- into further detail describing the difference between them and the knowledge acquired by each one? Yeah, the craftsman, uh, uh, if I, I uh, <clears throat> studied etching and, and uh, uh, dry point printmaking for a while mm-hmm. uh, to experience something of, of what he was doing. And I saw that uh, working on a, a copper plate with a needle and uh, drawing uh, with this very fine point and uh, making fine lines to uh, build up shapes, um, after I'd been doing it for a few hours, the um, the sparkly colors of the uh, the uh, refraction uh, lines uh, uh, in the copper uh, created a sort of iridescent quality. And for hours after I had been working on a plate, I, I would see that quality in everything I looked at. Uh, and uh, Blake described that. That sort of experience that uh, you enliven your senses by uh, working on something, and that extends to every new experience you have. You're um, uh, shaping it yourself while the new stuff is coming in. Hmm. And uh, 
the um, the person who works only on the level of knowledge, what the book and the professor say, uh, that builds up a similar set of reflexes in that person. So they go out seeing the world in terms of what the book and the professor have said. So they they see the world as talking concepts to them uh, rather than the craftsman mm. feel feels the world in uh, a sensory uh, newness corresponding to to how he's been using his body and mind uh, in working so he feels the world working back at him uh, with those same properties uh, that he's been enlivening hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, there's an, another question you brought up, uh, Blake's uh, perception of the world when he was working, and um, Todd Mudd asks uh, via email, the first biography of William Blake by Alexander Gilchrist makes frequent mention of Blake's hallucinations and visions and emphasizes the importance Blake and his wife placed on those visions. According to the biography, when Blake wanted to draw a famous historical person, he would act as if it's ghost was sitting literally in front of him, sometimes the ghost image wouldn't come and Blake would have to wait until its visitation later in order to make the drawing. I think it's more well known that Blake saw angels as a child and was reprimanded for this revelation. What do you make of Blake's visions, is the question. Um, I think it's uh, that way of thinking which uh, kids normally have and it gets trained out of them. Uh, you can't uh, use metaphors and and uh, imagery too much if uh, the, uh, the world around you doesn't like novel perceptions. Mm. I mean, you have to stick to the conventional images or else you'll be ostracized. Um, yeah, and uh, the, the body has this capacity to uh, uh, concretize to different extents its thoughts. Um, but most people uh, get stuck in the uh, concretizing the thoughts as words, and they start to think of the word as somehow uh, the, the uh, identity of the concept and the concept as the identity of what's in the world. Hmm. And uh, if you see that your body can uh, bring up these concrete images uh, as as you think, uh, it, that gives you a, a much more fluid uh, attitude towards uh, everything you learn. Hmm. Uh, um, you you see right in front of you your thought process and the um, the well-trained well-educated person sees words uh, as as their consciousness hmm. um, and the words uh, tend to to carry with them the, uh, the all of the uh, intentions of the educational system so it, it, that's the, um, the the cage that people build in their minds, the, 
that trap their whole being in in this world of words and concepts. I see. So we just sort of get lost in our abstractions. Um, in someone else's abstractions, uh, actually. Uh, right. Okay. And and, and extending uh, those abstractions, and and Blake repeatedly emphasized that you can't get useful knowledge from previously acquired knowledge. I mean, words are so tied to images. It seems like, you know, when I, whenever I read something, it brings up an image of some kind, and uh, I would think, in a way, they go hand in hand. Um, yeah, it depends on on uh, really how you read and how your mind works. Um, for a while, I was a, a major in psychology in graduate school. Uh, one of my projects was to uh, do a questionnaire and uh, find uh, creative people uh, versus uh, good students in various departments. And the people who were uh, somewhat nonconformist uh, and creative, productive, uh, always turned out to have uh, a different way of of thinking, even of dreaming. Hmm. Uh, the um, the most uh, conventional good student type uh, tended to even <clears throat> have boring language-centered dreams versus the uh, the, the richer, uh, more com- complex, colored, and uh, uh, interesting kind of dreaming oh. and thinking. Huh. So they actually think in symbols. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, oh, go on if you were going to say something. What was that? Were you going to go on about that? Oh, no, no. Okay. Um, well, I was wondering about I mean, I think the idea of the image is so interesting. You mentioned um, in another show about um, synetics, I think it was called. Uh, uh, some um, Synectics. Synectic, thank, thank you. I spelled it wrong. Um, which, well, why don't you explain what that was? And they used images or metaphors for solving problems. Is that right? Which uh, yeah, reminds um, me of Blake somehow. Yeah, the original Synectics book by W.J.J. Gordon, uh, was one I was talking about. It, it has since evolved into <clears throat> some kind of other business. But <clears throat> uh, he, in, in the 50s, uh, developed this group. First, they were uh, trying to uh, understand the creative process in art, and they realized that <clears throat> there was no objective way to uh, prove what was better in in the art, so they uh, went to engineering and uh, things that could have a, a concrete outcome that they could sell, and eventually it turned into uh, working, just solving corporation problems. But uh, uh, while they were developing the technique to understand how the brain uh, is creative, uh, they developed these different ways of using imagery and and body feeling, uh, putting yourself into the problem, uh, imagining the the problem in in different perspectives. And and that helped people think out of the box, as they say. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I was also curious uh, in the subject of visions and, and Blake. He, I guess he saw them his whole life, He um, and he definitely uh, made good use of them in his artwork. Um, and how do you re- or do you relate that at all to uh, Carl Jung uh, and his basically um, his uh, I don't know if you call it popularizing, but his uh, he seemed to bring to the public's attention the fact that those images are available to all of us, and they're in fact, according to his theory, uh, ind- indicative of a basically a whole love other level of mental activity uh, which you call the unconscious uh, that's going on within all of us all the time and driving much of what we do even though we're not aware of it and uh, do, do you relate that to Blake at all? Oh sure uh, I, I just I think uh, Jung didn't he, he was uh, sort, sort of on, on the fringes of Freudian thinking but uh, still uh, I think he was uh, tied to the the same culture that uh, affected Freud and uh, uh, Wilhelm Reich, even though he didn't talk about images, mm-hmm. I think was was closer to Blake in attitude than any of the uh, people in that psychoanalytic culture. I see. So, well, how would you rate this? Uh, uh, relate the psychoanalytic culture to Blake? It, it sounds like you're thinking they're off base somewhat. Um, well, the um, Freud with his uh, superego mm-hmm. and id, the id had to be repressed to form a, a rational ego. And uh, uh, Wilhelm Reich uh, pointed out that the, uh, the superego <laughs> included uh, the Nazis and other uh, absolutely undesirable oppressors yeah. and that, that the id uh, really had uh, most of what was good in humanity and shouldn't be repressed and uh, so uh, Reich had uh, sex political organizations and, and got in all kinds of trouble in Europe uh, by, by saying that, that people should be sexually free and uh, combining that with socialistic political ideas, and uh, that the, the sexual thing came out of, of Freudianism. But uh, Freud pleased the authorities by saying you must repress it, oh, yeah. and and accept authority. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Blake, uh, according to some of his biographers, uh, who was. Uh, sexually a, a very advanced thinker uh, uh, didn't believe that women should be uh, the property of, of their husbands and such. Hmm. And and where would you fit Jung into all that? Because he disagreed oh, pretty violently with uh, Freud about a lot of things. Uh, yeah, I think his emphasis on imagery is, is uh, very good. But uh, he he tried to uh, stereotype it into sort of uh, perpetual personality types. Mm. And uh, Blake would have said that that we have we and and worms and everybody has 
certain properties, but we're always going someplace new. That mm. uh, you can't uh, say that a, a person is uh, uh, bound to to any one of these personality types. I see. So he didn't want to put it, people in. Uh, he didn't want to stereotype any living thing. It sounds like. Um, yeah, that each thing uh, is different in, in its its um, unique species and individual personality, but uh, within uh, that species and form, every individual is always becoming something new. Hmm. Um, and I, I think um, a lot of his. Uh, uh, epistemology uh, that um, basing experience, putting experience as the, the basis of all knowledge, uh, I think that uh, grew directly out of his, his thinking about evolution uh, and uh, uh, reading Erasmus Darwin's thinking about evolution. Uh, Blake saw that each thing, the, the lamb and the tiger, uh, each one had its own character or genius, uh, but each one was was also uh, an individual uh, experiencing, uh, and uh, uh, has has to be free to be itself and to um, like like the human has to always be exploring. Uh, getting new new sensory information hmm. and how does um, this the image the idea of the image and that Blake was so uh, amazing with creating these uh, fantastic and yet very specific images and uh, in, in, in saying basically how he felt the world worked um, how does that all relate to uh, his ideas about science? Um, the um, uh, I think uh, Wilhelm Reich, uh, as as uh, thinking about science, um, he said that the um, people who um, identify with with what right? What Freud called the superego. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to put all life in spiritual things, and that makes them see the body as a, a, a worthless lump. Mm. And uh, matter, matter versus spirit, is, is an absolute uh, uh, contradiction in uh, that. Uh, Freudian thinking that, that Wilhelm Reich emphasized over and over that uh, uh, matter itself is is the uh, the source of of experience and knowledge, and uh, it's a, a deformation of personality that makes people think about matter as something else, something uh, outside of consciousness and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Kantian idea that uh, the thing in itself is unknowable, uh, where Blake and, and Reich 
would say that it, it's um, matter, the, um, the genius of matter is what knows. Mm. That's, that's, and, uh, oh, go on. Uh, ideas about uh, resonance and interaction and such. Uh, electricity was a, a great interest in uh, the whole culture, not just in, in uh, so-called sciences, but uh, the, the idea of electrical interactions uh, entered into uh, uh, common thinking so that people were getting so-called medical treatments by getting shocked <laughs> with with mild electrical uh, current. And the, so this idea of energy uh, as as part of life, uh, uh, some places, um, Blake uh, said there is no body distinct from the soul, uh, but uh, other places he identified the body with energy. Mm. Um, he, what he was denying was that there is this uh, inert nature behind what we experience as nature. Uh, there, there is no such thing as, as a thing in itself, which is this inert, uh, passive matter. He's saying it's all energy, not inert. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the the substance out of which we and the universe are made is is something which uh, you can call poetic genius mm. or energy or matter mm. if you don't if you don't get the wrong understanding of what matter means. I see, and a lot of his uh, paintings and drawings, he has basically put the human into the spirit. Uh, He's um, represents a lot of the spiritual ideas with human figures. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, but that's not. Uh, oh, go ahead. Uh, sorry. Uh, he he um, it was explicit in uh, saying that uh, you can see the human if, if your eyes are properly open. You can see the human. Uh, Existing in everything, hmm. mean, meaning that uh, you you aren't degrading something into uh, just matter. I see, and, and practicing sort of a uh, elitism of living things. Um, yeah, and um, uh, the, um, the the human was. Uh, he didn't didn't limit it to uh, just people, even though he, uh, in talking about Jesus, uh, sometimes uh, would uh, say that uh, Jesus was only a man, but uh, he was the best man <laughs> in uh, the most alive or the most conscious. Mm. Uh, I have to say at this point that it's 5.03 and you're listening to WMRW LP Warren and you're listening to Politics and Science. I'm John Barkhausen and my guest today is Dr. Ray Pete. Uh, he's a biologist and a physiologist from Eugene, Oregon. And we're very grateful that he's on the show uh, today helping us out with our fundraiser. 
if you like uh, shows like this or if you like music or if you like independent media, uh, please consider going to WMRW.org and making a donation uh, to support this little community radio station that does try to uh, do alternative news and alternative reporting on issues like we're talking about today. Let's see. So, and if people want to call in, I think it's uh, appropriate now. If you have questions about Blake uh, and his role uh, in the world and how it relates to science, we certainly welcome your calls, and we also welcome calls uh, about any other thing you'd like to talk about. So, uh, let me see here what I have. I wanted to read a quote uh, from... Blake, it's it's very short, off of one of his plates that he did, his engravings. And it's from uh, There Is No Natural Religion. Um, and it's just simply this. Therefore, God becomes as we are, that we may be as he is. And, and that seems like a very, uh, actually dangerous thing to say when he made that, in a way, because he's bringing God down. He's saying God, in a way, is created by us. Um, well, Spinoza uh, said it in a, a much more boring way. Mm. But, uh, Spinoza was, was trying to uh, uh, get away from, already at that time, the uh, uh, concretizing matter in a way that uh, uh, was justifying ways of thinking and ways of being in society. And um, when you separate spirit from matter, uh, you uh, tend to um, metaphorically uh, separate uh, merely working people from educated and powerful people. Uh, That's a, a tendency that you can see the, the a thousand years ago the um, uh, philosophers mostly uh, Jewish and and uh, Arabic or uh, Islamic philosophers were thinking about these issues uh, uh, the same thing that Aristotle differed from Plato on uh, Aristotle saw matter as creative and formative containing the formative principle in itself. And uh, a lot of the uh, medieval uh, philosophers were uh, pretty clear in in their thoughts on uh, what it means to define matter in one way or another. And and Plato, by putting knowledge in a world of forms, relegated human life to the material world, which was only temporal and not real, hmm. and uh, the um, people like like Blake realized still that uh, that that's where the important argument is: uh, politics and uh, uh, medical, so-called science, uh, physics. All of these uh, take on an ideological attitude. In in uh, medicine, it's genetics and the cell membrane. Uh, in in physics, it's 
currently a tendency to mystify the whole thing into uh, completely uh, non-experiential uh, quantum mechanical mm. uh, theories of uh, uh, mysterious interactions that can't ha have any uh, understandable uh, base in reality, but mm. it comes out of their calculations. So it's all mathematical modeling. Yeah, and yeah. and that's exactly why why Blake said that uh, when your reason, which he spelled U R I Z E N, mm -hmm. when your reason is separated from the body and emotions and senses, uh, it, it becomes tyrannical and stupid. Uh, and uh, he was referring to the chemists and physicists uh, equivalent of his time hmm. who were uh, letting the deist uh, idea of uh, uh, God and matter uh, get into their thinking about scientific issues. Hmm. Um, I'd like to talk more about that, but what I've uh, noticed when I looked at, up uh, Blake and a few books about him uh, is that he was being referred to as a Platonist, and how do you, is there any accounting for that? Uh, yeah, the, many of the uh, critical <clears throat> comments that I, I saw when I was <clears throat> um, starting to study him, uh, they were complete idiots, like, like the people that edited the, um, the book that I uh, ran across in my uh, world literature course. Uh, uh, they simply misunderstood anything of his they read. They thought uh, it was nice to include some poems about uh, lambs and tigers and little kids in their uh, anthology, but they totally misinterpreted uh, where Blake was using the word ironically. Mm. They took it literally. I see. Uh, that's pretty much the um, the way Blake criticism went until around 1950. Huh. Wow. Are you familiar with uh, one of the paperbacks I have, which seems pretty good, is by Kathleen Rain? Yeah, yeah, she was a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, it's called William Blake, appropriately. Um, and, and you refer to the deists. Uh, were they part of the Enlightenment movement? And oh, yeah. Um, could you uh, tell us uh, about that the, a little bit? They wanted to get a uh, divine right of kings. They wanted to uh, displace monarchy and, and uh, social hierarchy, and, and so they uh, kicked God out of the world and said he set it running and uh, no longer is intervening oh. because the, the kings were claiming that they were God's agents. And... Uh, uh, the the, um, uh, the whole attitude uh, puts the masses of people and animals and matter all into the same lump and and the uh, degree of closeness to the monarchy <laughs> was the same as as the degree of closeness to divinity and uh, hmm. the, um, the monarchy loved to uh, torture and and uh, slaughter people for their 
insults. Uh, it was really an absolute uh, and pretty disgusting social system right down into the, the 19th century. They were still slaughtering people for minor offenses. So, so the deists basically believed in God, but they thought he had just set the whole thing up and then he'd stepped out. Yeah, and, and they were inviting the king to step out, too. I see. It's a, but he had given, probably in their minds, I'm guessing, they'd given man dominion over everything? Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, did Blake didn't entirely disagree with all of the Enlightenment movement, did he? He was... He, oh, no, everything, uh, everything that was uh, towards liberation mm-hmm. and realization of uh, uh, the good uh, principles of, of justice and, and knowledge and uh, uh, good things, uh, he supported them. Mm. Uh, he supported the, uh, the revolutionaries in France and, and uh, America, and even while after Edmund Burke was uh, turning against the French Revolution, because he saw it, it was a threat to his class, not just the monarchy. Uh, and uh, uh, Blake and uh, Tom Paine and Joseph Priestley, uh, some of them uh, stayed supportive of the French Revolution. Hmm. And but uh, was the, it? the deists, a lot of the deists were um, uh, rationalists who uh, wanted to... Uh, protect their property and, and take on the uh, role of the monarch uh, when they, after they kicked out the monarch. I see. And, uh, so it, it, deism was fine for, for justifying a new kind of tyranny. Yeah. And, and, and so Blake was uh, uh, analyzing that process of how reason justifies uh, once it throws off an old tyranny, it becomes a tyrant in its place. And I don't know if how, how closely connected Blake still was with Tom Paine um, following Paine's imprisonment in France. Uh, I suspect that, that um, George Washington actually was manipulating uh, in a, a counter-revolutionary way. I don't know of any facts to support it, but mm-hmm. uh, Paine's experience in prison was that uh, Washington and his ambassadors uh, were explicitly ignoring uh, the fact that uh, Paine was in prison scheduled to be executed. Hmm. And uh, Paine got really ignored, really annoyed with Washington and uh, uh, after he got out of prison, he wrote a long letter that I think everyone interested in American history should read, mm. uh, uh, showing that already by '95, uh, George Washington was acting pretty much like George Bush or, or George the uh, Third, uh, trying to be a, a tyrant and uh, uh, very hypocritical and corrupt. Hmm. Yeah, and I think Payne sort of ended up in um, very poor in America and ostracized. Um, yeah, as, 
although he was a deist, that was uh, considered by the the uh, his opponents uh, and manipulated to uh, equal atheism. And uh, Theodore Roosevelt famously referred to him as a dirty little atheist. Huh. Wow. Um, and uh, still, uh, Blake uh, defended him as, as not being an atheist, and uh, he, uh, Blake didn't uh, go along with, with with deism, but he uh, fully supported Tom Paine, and he was the one that advised him to get out of England, go to France to uh, avoid being uh, tried and executed for his anti-monarchy opinion. And uh, the, um, he got out in time to avoid being tried. <laughs> I, I think the government went along uh, uh, letting him get out of the country so that uh, they could try him in absentia and convict him. Otherwise, he would have been in court eloquently oh, right. <laughs> explaining. <laughs> that makes sense, yeah. And uh, William Blake helped him escape, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then he went to France and was arrested after um, that? Yeah, first he was elected um, uh, a member of the uh, convention of Parliament, uh, even though he couldn't speak French, he was so uh, famous internationally that uh, he was made a French citizen and member of the government. Uh, but then uh, the government uh, passed a rule that uh, foreigners couldn't be citizens, and uh, foreigners uh, were um, automatically uh, treated as as agents of of the enemy, and he was imprisoned. Oh. And, and uh, uh, Washington wouldn't do anything to get him out. And, uh, some accident uh, prevented his being executed, but uh, uh, finally Robespierre was executed himself, and uh, uh, prisoners were released. Hmm. Wow. Well, um, uh, you, you know, Blake was tried for sedition and treason. That's right. It didn't. Go ahead. Um, uh, he was, uh, his own view, according to Gilchrist, was that uh, the, the government had uh, arranged to have this soldier come and, and make a, a, a big drunk riot in his yard hmm. uh, to to uh, get to incriminate him but uh, oh. that, that was just a, a hearsay about Blake's opinion but it, it was set up but the fact was that uh, he uh, got angry mm -hmm. and even though the soldier was much bigger uh, Blake uh, got furious and, and frightened the soldier and marched him down the street to the tavern. Hmm. And uh, um, the soldier uh, got his uh, buddy to uh, tell the officer that uh, Blake had been damning the king uh, and uh, uh, developed the story gradually that uh, he had 
said he hoped Bonaparte would invade and so on. And uh, so he went to trial. But everyone that knew him uh, said that they couldn't imagine that a peaceful Mr. Blake could have acted so uh, ferociously and uh, said such things. Uh, so he was acquitted. Hmm. Yeah, and according to what I was reading, he was quite shaken by that and uh, changed his ta- um, tactics a little bit. Um, yeah, he, um, if, if they had looked in his papers, they would have for sure uh, executed him. Mm. But uh, the, the um, I think partly it was government disorganization. And uh, the, the judge, I think, in that case was himself a former radical and oh. I don't know wh- whether he had any influence but uh, there, w- there was such a mood against the king that by that time it was hard to convict people. Yeah. Well, Ray, is there anything... I, I have some questions about health issues that people have sent in and um, we could go to those. Do you have any summing up you'd like to do about Blake's role in, in science? Oh, no. Okay. All right. Let's uh, move on then. We're talking to Dr. Raymond Pete here on WMRW LP Warren, and uh, we're going to switch now to his role as a physiologist. And I'm getting a phone call right now, but I'm going to tell that person that uh, the way to call into this talk show is to call my Skype number, which is 802-526-2326. That's 802 802- Five two six two three two six, and I'm sorry I didn't give that out earlier, and I will endeavor to give it out again. Um, so one question is about the ketone diet. It, it's popular these days and appears to achieve impressive weight loss results. What's your opinion on this burning off of stored fat and how it affects your overall health? It's very stressful to get in that condition for most people. Um, extreme hypoglycemia is needed and that typically turns on lots of cortisol production and uh, that has many undesirable consequences Um, but the worst thing is that almost everyone uh, the older you are the more uh, polyunsaturated fats you have built into your tissue and those being mobilized and oxidized uh, damage practically everything. Uh, they uh, interfere with mitochondrial respiration, but uh, they also uh, break down and uh, have cause oxidative damage to everything outside as well as inside the mitochondria. So... so uh, for a 10-year-old, it's um, not so damaging because their tissues are usually not so loaded with uh, polyunsaturated fats. But for a 30- or 40-year-old, it can be really harmful. Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, see, uh, somebody used the metaphor of burning fats as like uh, a slow burning log and burning sugars is like burning kindling. Uh, 
how, how do you what's your take on that metaphor um with a good hot fire you don't get any smoke burning unsaturated fats you get very toxic smoke okay um, and if cigarette smoke uh, uh, contains acrolein for example which can form acrylamide and other toxins but uh, the, the um, polyunsaturated fats break down into these toxins similar to what you get in smoke mm. so it's, it's a good good metaphor you don't want a slow smoky toxic fire okay uh, heart arrhythmias um, what is it and uh, is afib and tachycardia does that all fit into that uh, label and what are the causes and solutions the um, one of the recognized things associated with it is that the blood is usually more viscous than normal and uh, that makes it slower to uh, refill after the stroke and uh, just that viscosity and and discrepancy between the pressure going out and the pressure coming in um, tends to give uh, complex signals to the heart uh, and that can contribute if the heart is sensitive to uh, uh, new stimulation uh, it can produce a, a premature contraction or, or it can uh, cause a delayed contraction if if the heart is less sensitive mm. and the uh, the things that you have been eating chronically as well as your hormonal balance uh, affect the sensitivity of of the heart uh, to to stimulation of either the volume of blood or nerve uh, impulses and and the nerve impulses uh, are affected especially by the balance of uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic nerves and uh, the opposing steroids uh, such as estrogen versus progesterone and testosterone and high estrogen increases the sensitivity and uh, uh, likelihood to contract uh, progesterone desensitizes the heart so that it can build up a, a bigger charge of blood have a bigger stroke before it uh, fires and and contracts mm. uh, and uh, too much uh, of the adrenergic side uh, will make it uh, oversensitive and and tend to have premature contractions too much of the cholinergic side can simply stop the heart and kill you okay that's um uh, so the uh, oh yeah uh, thyroid sensitizes you to um, the sympathetic side and so if you uh, take thyroid suddenly when you've been hypothyroid uh, then you can get tachycardia and a, a person's liver governs the, the way the thyroid is working so a person with liver problems can uh, have uh, periodic episodes of, of tachycardia uh, when the, the thyroid suddenly becomes active against a background of extremely high adrenaline. Hmm. And, uh, what, 
combinations of high high estrogen and low thyroid are very dangerous for the heart. It sounds uh, even if you're you know trying to adjust it, it sounds very difficult to uh, get it right. Um, well, if you do things gradually, and uh, okay. uh, estrogen uh, has to be kept under control uh, because, <clears throat> as well as exciting nerves and uh, uh, contractions, uh, it increases the tendency to clot, and uh, clotting uh, tends to go with the high blood viscosity and uh, uh, arrhythmia tendency. Uh, so uh, getting your estrogen progesterone balance is probably the, the, the basic thing to work on mm. since uh, progesterone has a sort of digitalis like effect of uh, increasing the stroke volume uh, making the heart work more efficiently with fewer beats mm-hmm. all right uh, somebody just wrote in um I'm a bit confused about Ray's statements about modern quantum physics. The mathematical formalism makes very well-proven statistical predictions about many phenomena, for example, the double-slit experiment. The problem is, however, that some people think it's a complete theory of everything and draw arbitrary conclusions from this formalism about the nature of the universe, adding an element of randomness. So I think it is important to distinguish between the mathematical formalism and the more or less deceptive interpretation of Heisenberg and others. And it's important, I think, to um, look around and see the many different interpretations of that slit experiment. And, and uh, it, it, it's so convincing. The prediction is there, but the, the interpretation of what the prediction means mm-hmm. is the whole thing. And uh, you can find a lot of very interesting and convincing alternative interpretations. And I would say uh, the problem wouldn't exist except for uh, Einstein and people of his uh, generation early in the century making a a very mistaken basic assumption about the nature of matter, which is that matter is entirely local, atomic, has no uh, field properties extending electrically beyond individual atomic interactions. Hmm. And from that um, peculiar atomic uh, granular nature of matter that they believed uh, absolutely, then to produce the photoelectric effect, light also had to be granular to act locally to displace one electron per photon. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's purely derived from the assumptions that they so firmly believed, which just 15 years later turned out absolutely not to be true. And the the quantum thing of non-locality, uh, Michael Polanyi uh, proposed an absorption isotherm was very simple, very empirical, and was not compatible with Einstein's <laughs> granular theory of matter. But uh, over the, through the 20s, Polanyi's uh, work 
went off in different directions to uh, crystals and metalworking, crystal bending, breaking energy, and so on. Each experiment he did has tended to indicate a non-local nature of, of uh, the energy in solid state metals and crystals. And uh, following that, uh, by, by 1930, uh, there was this new long-range uh, interpretation of, of the energy in, metal, in matter. And uh, with matter having a wave-like behavior, then you can explain uh, uh, photoelectric processes in terms of one wave interacting with another wave, uh, a sort of tuning of waves in light and matter to each other rather than having to imagine a particulate granular nature of light to match your uh, granular nature of, of metal that you believed in. Hmm. So uh, the, the assumptions are so important to uh, the quantum people that they don't like uh, these critics uh, to um, say that the, the assumptions have to be re-examined, but uh, what they do is, is to uh, say the, the critics can't play in their, in their game. Mm. <laughs> it's their ball. Um, yeah, Michael Polanyi, he was uh, ridiculed by them, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. yeah, and uh, he he was so <clears throat> uh, affected by by that uh, reaction of the established physicists that even when he became a physics professor, he wouldn't teach his students the true Polanyi isotherm. He taught the stupid Langmuir monolayer isotherm. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, go on, Ray. I think uh, I, I was going to uh, talk more about uh, that, but uh, go, ahead, go ahead. Okay, you can if you want. Um, I, uh, did, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, uh, the the phone is breaking up. Oh, it is. Um, you can't hear me well. I, I I can't understand what you're saying at all. Okay, let's just see if it recovers. Is it any better now? No, I'll call you right back, Ray. I I still can't understand anything. It's, it's just a okay. A let's garble. let's hang up. Can you understand that? I'll call you back. Oh, okay. Yeah. Bye. Let's see. All right, you're listening to WMRWLP Warren, and we'll get our. Guest, Dr. Raymond Pete, back on the line as soon as I figure out how to find him. Uh, thanks to people who have donated while the show's been going on. Really appreciate that. And you can do that also if you'd like at WMRW.org. Hello? Hello, Ray. You're on the air. Can you? Oh, uh, yeah, you're clear now. Oh, good. I got our wires crossed there. Must have been that. The. Uh, Heisenberg principle <laughs> uh, getting in the way. So uh, back to um, health issues. Um, unless you wanted to say something else about well, uh, I, that I, question. 
I was just going to give an example of, of how the establishment uh, excludes people who uh, talk about evidence too much. Uh, sure. Uh, Halton Arp mm -hmm. uh, wrote a book, uh, Seeing Red, uh, which describes his experience. He was the person who, I guess about uh, 15 or 20 years ago, was making photographs showing uh, galaxies with uh, stringers of matter between them, uh, showing a, a connectedness of substance, but the galaxies had a, a very great redshift difference, <laughs> showing that they, they should be moving at extremely different velocities, even though they were connected. Hmm. And uh, he made quite a few of those pictures, and uh, he was denied use of the telescopes <laughs> because the, the the pictures so strongly uh, made fun of, of the belief in the expanding universe explanation for the redshift. And you just said, I was always wondering what the redshift meant. You said it means that it's traveling at a high velocity? Yeah, away from us. Okay. Um, like the Doppler effect of, of sound when a vehicle goes by you blowing its horn, the pitch drops as it passes you. I see. Um, and Holton Arp has a website uh, oh. with some of his more recent comments, uh, but uh, that that's the the general behavior that when you get evidence that uh, uh, is embarrassing to your uh, committed assumptions, yeah. uh, you have to uh, stop the uh, person who's providing the evidence. Yeah, it seems a lot like <laughs> at the university level, it seems like it's king of the hill there. You can't hold departments and all grant, grant um, as, you know, They've, they've established uh, income flows from grants, and if you uh, shake that up, you're really upsetting a lot of people. Yeah, once my um, uh, physiology professor came up behind me to uh, see, see how my nerve setup was going, and I showed him that uh, as the microelectrode entered the cell, the voltage went up properly, and I said, and now... Notice as it penetrates to the other side of the cell, you get a dip, a rise, a dip, and another rise. And then when you move the electrode back, you repeat that same hmm. pattern of voltage changes within the single cell. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, at some level, recognized that that violated his whole doctrine of, of cell voltage which is that there's a liquid inside the membrane which has a voltage difference from the outside. And for each region inside a single cell to have a different voltage, uh, he just turned around and uh, he never spoke to me again. Really? That's, uh, that's sad and um, too bad that he couldn't just take what you found out and go with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, people certainly do get attached to their own ideas, i got to say. Um, okay, here's a question, if you're ready to move on to a health question. Mm -hmm. Okay, about neuropathy. Um, extreme number, extremity numbness, like in, fing in people's fingers coming and going, 
Uh, what is that indicative of? It's common in uh, uh, diabetes, but uh, there it, it often happens uh, years before <clears throat> you see the uh, blood sugar becoming uh, what they define as diabetic. So it, it's really something other than diabetes. And uh, in the case of, of one hand, for example, it can be uh, one of the tunnel syndromes, either in the wrist or the elbow, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes up in the shoulder or neck, uh, wherever the nerve goes through a, a pinch point. If your connective tissue swells up, uh, the nerve gets squeezed and you you get tingly numbness. Mm-hmm. And if that happens during the night, uh, uh, that's very common in in anyone who has just a slight hormonal imbalance uh, uh, away from good oxidative metabolism, causing the connective tissues to take up water and swell. Mm-hmm. And uh, many people who were going to have carpal tunnel surgery, for example, or back surgery or whatever, uh, just by taking thyroid or pregnenolone have uh, completely relieved the problem and not needed the surgery. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. Uh, there's a, a lot of interesting work being done on that now, hundreds of relevant papers. Oh. Uh, the the, the uh, standard medical opinion of peripheral neuropathy is that it's produced by high blood sugar, even though it, it occurs before the person has high blood sugar in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, its association with diabetes lets it be blamed on sugar, and particular uh, changes such as uh, the carbonyl uh, attachment to, to uh, proteins, uh, a certain sugar metabolic change in the cell. Um, they have um, four or five of their um, definitions of the cause attributing it to sugar, which are of interest to the uh, pharmaceutical industry because each one of them is an opportunity to develop a drug. But since it um, the same kind of process in the nerve happens way before diabetes sets in and in people who never get diabetes and it also happens in the brain syndromes Um, many other um, lines of research are connecting it to toxins endotoxin from the intestine Mm -hmm. prostaglandins so that simply taking aspirin can make a tremendous change Um, the uh, nitric oxide which is released from uh, not only smog and cigarette smoke, but uh, from the uh, irritation from intestinal toxins and prostaglandins, uh, and from an estrogen excess and deficiency of uh, other steroids. Uh, the, uh, about 25 years ago, uh, it was recognized that the brain is a major steroid organ, uh, like a a giant adrenal or gonad, uh, the brain produces a lot of steroid hormones, Mm -hmm. and and they're called neurosteroids, Mm -hmm. but uh, 
uh, progesterone and uh, DHEA, pregnenolone and progesterone, uh, are uh, the, the main ones are derivatives of progesterone, but several of the, the minor uh, steroids are also produced in the brain. And, and that was recognized as a acceptable science for about 20 years, but uh, just recently people are now recognizing that peripheral nerves also have their nerve steroids and are just as dependent as the brain on the right balance of estrogen to progesterone. Hmm. So perhaps supplementing some of those uh, would help. Yeah. Right. And, and doing everything that helps the organism to balance the natural production of them. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's very useful. Uh, here's another question from uh, Tyler. Can you explain the role of electrolytes in the body and specifically... Uh, how they are associated with fluid balance regulation, and what the reali- what the uh, relationship of them are them being electrolytes to adrenal fatigue. Um, let me just read this because I'm I'm messing up this question. Can you explain the role of electrolytes in the body, specifically how they are associated with fluid balance and regulation? The so-called adrenal fatigue in quotes mentality states that adrenal dysfunction can hamper the body's ability to maintain an optimal balance of electrolytes, sodium and potassium. If someone is having issues with maintaining a proper fluid balance and has symptoms of frequent urination and also seems to exhibit signs of uh, minor hypo or hyper um, kalemia, um, potassium, I guess, levels at times, what sort of therapies are available to alleviate these imbalances? Um, the... the um the medical dogma is that cells have pumps in their membranes and uh, that pumps regulate the, uh, the balance in every cell and in the kidney. Uh, these pumps are especially important because they regulate the, the ion balance in the bloodstream and thus in the whole organism. Uh, but uh, Gilbert Ling's work uh, shows that uh, the pump concept in the membrane is simply irrational, uh, wildly unrelated to the evidence. And uh, his explanation, uh, condensing it, uh, is is that the uh, cytoplasm, the whole cell substance, is like an ion exchange resin uh, when you soften your water uh, you put uh, sodium charge the, the resin with sodium and then the uh, hard water containing calcium and magnesium displaces the uh, sodium from the, the resin simply because it has a higher affinity and and acid will uh, compete against the the sodium, so you have a hierarchy of of ions with any given solid state material that can absorb water. It will uh, prefer and exclude different ions. And when the cell substance is acidified, it uh, prefers potassium because of the 
the ratio of the, the size of the ion and the uh, the charge distribution on the surface of that uh, size uh, comparing sodium to to potassium potassium prefers the uh, the solid material with a lower electron concentration and uh, if the cell pH rises the electron concentration on a given protein uh, increases and in that state the, uh, the the sodium ion is preferred and the potassium is displaced so the the, um, the, the main thing which uh, determines in the healthy cell that the acidic pH pH is the oxidation of um, fuel uh, producing uh, not only ATP but carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide is itself an acid even in the gaseous form that's Lewis acid and as it ionizes and leaves the cell it takes uh, ions along with it to maintain electrical balance. You have a steady streaming out of the cell of, of carbonic acid and an associated positive ion. So uh, if you slow down the production of uh, carbon dioxide and the production of useful energy as ATP, the, the uh, pH rises not only because less uh, uh, CO2 is being produced and dragging the, the base uh, minerals, the alkaline minerals, out of the cell, but lactic acid is formed, and in uh, leaving the cell, it takes protons out with it, um, making the cell more alkaline. Mm. And that alkaline condition prefers sodium. And uh, specific clear experiments, for example, the... Uh, the salt gland of a, a turtle's eye or a reptile's eye, different kinds, uh, can excrete salt. They, they eat uh, a salty diet and they have to get rid of excess sodium. Uh, they have glands uh, up around their eye that uh, excretes such a concentrated uh, salt solution that they get crystals running down their nose. <laughs> and... Uh, the mechanism there is the same thing, carbon dioxide leaving the gland, taking sodium out with it. Uh, so that's a, a, a way to visualize what's happening in every cell. And uh, in a low thyroid state, you uh, have many imbalances. Every cell is, is tending to uh, take up sodium and, and calcium to lose potassium and magnesium uh, but in the liver or in the kidney uh, that those same processes work as in the uh, the, the salt gland and uh, the, the condition of, of being low thyroid means that you lose sodium because you can't uh, put it back into the bloodstream from the urine uh, the reverse process of a salt gland is, is putting it uh, back 
into the bloodstream as needed mm-hmm. so that the urine can be relatively dilute. And uh, so a, a low thyroid person will tend to put more sodium into the urine and uh, make their blood relatively dilute. Uh, and that leads to swelling of, of the tissues. But the swelling really started back in the cell, which became alkaline because any uh, shift that increases the electron density and alkalinity of, of a, whether it's a, an ion exchange resin or a cell, it will make that uh, cell take up water, hydrating the gel. Hmm. Uh, so it isn't just the kidney that's uh, losing sodium and retaining water. It's the, every cell in your body is suffering the same thing when you aren't respiring, uh, producing enough CO2. Wow, that's, so that's quite a, uh, a series of effects it has. Well, that's... Um, so you, you would say that perhaps taking thyroid or increasing your salt and um, and, and mineral intake uh, would help? Uh, yeah, the, the salt uh, will help the low thyroid person. Uh, they call it inappropriate secretion of antidiuretic hormone syndrome, but uh, it, it's, I think, basically uh, a hormone imbalance uh, starting with thyroid, but then the adrenal hormones are, are involved. The, um, when you uh, lose too much sodium, your aldosterone increases in the adrenal, and uh, that tends to exchange magnesium loss for sodium loss. And so it, it can keep you going uh, in in the absence of sufficient dietary uh, sodium. But the increasing uh, uh, aldosterone has its hormonal effects, shifting even your parasympathetic nervous system uh, balance and uh, uh, causing all kinds of inflammation, uh, progression towards fibrosis, mm. um, Heart failure uh, almost always involves uh, too much effective aldosterone. All right. Um, so we're running out of time here. We only have six minutes left, and I have too many questions. So we may have to uh, do this again sometime. Um, in fact, one of these questions is about Gerald Pollack and Gilbert Ling, and I'm going to have Gerald Pollack on the show in a couple weeks so, uh, Andre, uh, sorry, we're not going to deal with that today. Um, thank you for your question, but we, um, w- we will get to it, I hope. I hope everyone has a chance to look at some of uh, Gerald Pollack's videos. Uh, they're just great, very impressive mm-hmm. things that he's doing with water. Yeah, he, it is. It's a very hopeful, I think, because uh, it's a very exciting uh, new approach to uh, how uh, water affects us all, and uh, it's, I think it'll prove to have. I mean, it's a carry on of uh, Gilbert Ling's work, and uh, it's up Gerald Pollack, I think, is a very good at explaining it. Um, something that uh, Dr. Ling, I, I have, as a lay person, I had trouble understanding it. So, 
Um, so I thought maybe this question here, we have a little bit of time left. We have uh, like four minutes, and it uh, also relates to uh, the cell and uh, the, the mitochondria and our energy mechanism. Um, it's from Tony. She says, or he says, Dr. Pete, you mentioned that if the cell gets damaged in the mitochondria, for example, too much calcium without other protective minerals or too much PUFAs, uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids in the diet, it dies. The cell dies. So is the body able to make new cells to sustain energy? Is this person left with less cells to make ATP and will possibly continue life with less energy even when they are eating carbohydrates, fruit, sugar, and less starch? Will this person be able to recover with efficient glucose metabolism or have to live with the lactic acid glycolysis like a diabetic? Um, yeah, the mitochondria themselves uh, can be repaired and uh, induced to uh, multiply in an individual damaged cell. And uh, uh, a dying cell can be replaced uh, from stem cells or adjoining cells uh, given the proper conditions. And the uh, uh, there was a demonstration of uh, old people whose muscle mitochondria lacked all of the necessary DNA for proper mitochondrial function. So it looked like their mitochondria were simply on the way to dying. Mm. But just by having them do some uh, uh, weightlifting, uh, concentric weightlifting, not, not the uh, kind that stretches your tight muscle, but the kind that only has weight when you're when the muscle is contracting so with a few weeks of concentric muscle building uh, they were able to uh, find new mitochondria in their muscle cells with all of the proper dna so apparently the uh, the few good mitochondria they had left were multiplying and and taking over so something as simple as concentric exercise uh, can can restore old and damaged cells. And uh, if the whole cell dies, then uh, a, a whole new cell with good mitochondria can replace it. Uh, uh, there were experiments uh, taking samples from people's facial skin and finding a lot of mutated damaged cells from exposure to the sun and when they were kept out of the sun for uh, several weeks, uh, uh, completely uh, covering the skin so it wasn't getting uh, ultraviolet damage, uh, their mutated skin cells disappeared. The stem cells had taken over and replaced skin cells with good cells. Hmm. So pretty much stopping the, uh, the continuing damage and... Uh, giving the cell the necessary stimulation and work to do, yeah. uh, things will repair themselves. All and, right. And that happens even to the brain, and in far advanced cases, uh, I've seen people come out of uh, dementia and epilepsy and uh, very, very far advanced things. Well, that's uh, really, really hopeful, Ray, and we have exactly about... Ten seconds left, so I'll have to let you go. Um, okay. Thank you so much for being on today. We really appreciate it. Okay. 
Okay, thank you. Um, you can find out more about Ray at raypeat.com. That's R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. R-A-Y-P-E-A-T.com. And uh, you've been listening to Politics and Science on WMRW LP Warren. The previous show.